0: Wow, thank you. Thank you, worship team. It was so, so good. Just be in God's presence, be reminded of that. God is with us. We gather in the name of Jesus. I said this last week uh, that, that Christ is not present because we sing. We sing because Christ is present. Um, that uh, Christ isn't present because we gather, but we gather because Christ is present. And so I'm glad you're here. Glad that uh, we get a chance to. Yeah, just talk together about some of the most important things people can gather and talk about, to talk about the good news of Jesus. And so if you have your Bibles, turn with me, would love to have you turn with me to the book of 1 Corinthians chapter 15. Are we, is it like echo a little bit? Something? Yeah, sorry about that. I don't know if, if it's something I'm doing or not doing, but echo. Okay, very cool. Um, I was waiting for some smart aleck to echo back, but nobody did. Yeah, right so, uh, 1 Corinthians chapter 15, if you have, a, if you have a, a, don't have a Bible, there are red Bibles like this somewhere on the, the row that you're in, and 1 Corinthians 15 is on page 1050, and then also we'd love to have you take out the, the notes portion of the bulletin, there's a little insert that uh, has uh, just some notes of what we're going to be talking about today, I can guarantee we're not going to get through everything. And so this can be a helpful tool for you to, uh, to be reminded of some of the things we talked about today, to jot down a few notes because we're going to move pretty quickly, and then to be able to process this stuff, to, to be able to say, okay, here's what we're talking about on Sunday morning. How do you talk about it as a family? How do you talk about it around the dinner table or with your kids uh, or in your missional communities or small groups? Um, to just kind of begin to flesh out what God might be saying to us through his His word today. Uh, I misspoke last week, so I need to apologize. need to start with an apology. That last week I said we're starting a series on Daniel next week, which would be this week. And I was wrong. It's next week. I uh, promise. Next week. Um, so it's uh, a series called Daniel, Thriving in Babylon, we are going to just spend seven weeks anchored in the the Old Testament text of, ba- of of Daniel, and I'm super excited about it. In fact, the more we get into the text, the more I'm excited about it. My my. My excitement just continues to grow. And so I w- want to, again, encourage you, just start reading the book of Daniel, especially the first seven chapters. Make it a part of your daily reading of Scripture. And, uh, and I think it will, it will change the way you experience our worship on Sunday mornings, like coming with these stories already a part of you and God speaking to you throughout the week about that. That sound good? Now, if you look at the front of your bulletin, um, you see, you see this uh, this slide that says "Resurrection, September 9th, 2018." Was not intending to make this a prediction of the end of the world. Um, resurrection going to happen September 9th, 2018. Although if I did that, I would have probably made a lot of money because people tend to make lots of money when they predict the end of the world. Uh, Tony Campolo once uh, once quipped, he said. Um, Jesus even said that he doesn't know the day or the hour when, you know, the world will end. So if you want to know that, you have to ask an American televangelist, because they're the only ones who apparently God has given that knowledge to. So we're talking about, talking about this, this vision of the end of all things, the end of the world. As, as Christians, we believe that the Bible teaches that history is linear, history is moving somewhere. There are other cultures, other worldviews that say, no, 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 history is cyclical, it just will repeat itself for infinity, Um, but that's not the worldview of Christians. We believe history is headed somewhere, and God is moving it, God is sort of orchestrating it, and if it is linear, if it's headed somewhere, there will be an ultimate sort of climax, that it will, the curtain will end up sort of closing on what we know as history, and God will bring all things to an end. So, that's what we want to start talking about today, just a little bit, and Um, And and one of the reasons is this, is I I really want us as a church to have a Jesus-centered, hope-filled vision for the future. Because I think this is what the Bible leads us to. To have a Jesus-centered and a hope-filled vision of the future. Like so many times when people talk about the future, the end of the world as we know it, we don't feel fine. Um, It's a future full of fear and dread and anxiety and angst and terror. Like that's how we tend to think about the end or how people who sort of drum up fanaticism think about the end. But like when the New Testament talks about the end of the world, like in 1 Thessalonians 4, the Apostle Paul says, encourage one another with these words. Like, it should, it should it's inspire encouragement and hope and faith and, um, and joy in us as we think about what God has in store for the future. And then, before I'm a preacher, like, before I preach sermons, I'm a pastor. I'm a pastor. Right? It's a pastor. Another name is, is Shepherd. Like, I just get to be with people in the congregation and walk together toward Jesus. And there are all sorts of these like pastoral questions that come up in times when loved ones pass away. It's one of, it's one of the, the really holy moments that I never take lightly, that, that I just get invited into um, in the lives of the church, of these moments when a loved one passes away. And then there are all sorts of just these questions that we want to ask in those moments of like, what happens when we die? Like, what what, what does the future hold for, uh, for our loved ones? What does the future hold for us as we near death? Like we're all sort of linear. History is linear for us too. We're moving toward that moment when our life on earth ends. What happens? And, and sometimes that can be full of lots of anxiety and lots of fear. But again, Jesus gives us a hope-filled vision for that as well. And, and sometimes in funeral services, I'll hear, I hear things and I think, oh man, like, That, like, it may be comforting, but that's just really bad theology. Like, maybe you've had these moments where you think, like, that is just, I don't think that's what the Bible teaches. Um, And and we say things to sometimes try to be comforting, but it's just like it's not grounded in Scripture. Here's an example Um, a loved one passes away, and we say, uh, I'll use my grandma. So my grandmother passed away a couple years ago, and let's say somebody would come to me and say, Oh, like, I know this is a hard time, but God got another angel. Like, do we, do we believe that human beings become angels when they die? Or, like, sometimes, like, it's a wonderful life. Remember that Christmas movie? is like every time a bell rings, bing, another, you know, angel gets its wings— and so we, we've, I've heard that before, too. It's like, oh, she got her wings now. And there's this kind of subtle belief that, like, do human beings become angels? And I think we can just very clearly say, no, human beings and angels are fundamentally different creatures, and human beings will never become angels. And so, but that's one of the things. Sometimes uh, I, I hear, like, in funerals, like, oh, like, well, your loved one is, is watching over you now. Like, okay, so my grandma is, like, watching over me. And again, this is one. there's a little more mystery to this, but... We, we don't have all the answers, but there's, a, there's nothing in Scripture that would sort of point us to that reality to say that, that people who have passed away, who are in the presence of Christ, are somehow watching over us. Uh, so we just we can't really speak to that with, um, with any kind of authority. But what we do know is that Jesus is watching over us that God is watching over us, that God is caring for us, and so our loved ones don't need to. Our loved ones can be with Jesus, and they can enjoy the presence of Jesus, and we can trust that Jesus is going to watch over us. So there are all kinds of these, these things that I, I think it's just important for us to have our understanding of, scripture anch- or our understanding of the end and death anchored in Scripture. Um, and we have to be really, I think, careful when we do this. When we think about heaven, when we think about the future, is that we, we don't go beyond what is written. I mean, the Bible gives us incredible, incredible glimpses of hope and goodness, but it's really quickly and it's really easy to just sort of step off the ledge into speculation and conjecture. Well, I think this is maybe what it's like. And, and so there's this, there's this warning, Scripture gives us, hey, don't go beyond what is written. And so uh, we, we want to do that. And sometimes, um, like, we, there are all sorts of best-selling books about people who have passed away, you know, this is their testimony that, like, I passed away, I was dead, and somehow I, I went and I encountered, you know, either Jesus or another person and then came back and sort of tell the story. And, and these kind of reports, I'm sure you've, you've seen them and maybe you like really enjoy reading them. Like, I don't want to discourage you from reading those books at all. And yet, I think it's very important that we don't form our vision of the future based on these kinds of testimonies. That we base our vision of the future on what scripture teaches and what Jesus teaches. Um, because here's, here's the interesting thing. Scripture could, if it wanted to, give us those kinds of testimonies. Because there were people who were raised from the dead. Lazarus, for example. Like, it would have been a perfect opportunity for John, as he's writing his gospel, Lazarus has been in the grave, you know, for for three days, and Jesus comes and resuscitates him, uh, breathes life back into his body, and it would have been an ideal opportunity for John to say, Lazarus, what was it like? What did you see? Well, I saw the bright light, and I saw that, you know, I went toward it, whatever. Scripture is completely silent on that. And I think that in itself should teach us something, that we have answers to the things we need answers for, and it's very quick, uh, it's very easy to just slide into speculation. Um, And so we want to be people who are anchored in Scripture. And then the last kind of point of introduction is this, is that our vision of the future should inspire us to live faithfully here and now today. That how we see the future unfolding should inspire how we live and inform how we live here and now today. Here's an example. Uh, Jesse, uh, our youth pastor, soon to be discipleship pastor, is running a half marathon in a couple of weeks. So in in October, he's running the, uh, the Salt City half marathon. So if you see Jesse, cheer him on. This is his first half marathon, right? So cheer him on, encourage him. But he knows like this event is coming in the future and he's got a date on the calendar and he knows I'm running a half marathon and that understanding that that date is coming in the future it changes how he lives today Jesse is going to eat differently today because of that race. He's going to drink more water today because of that race. He's going to get up in the morning and go for that run because he knows that day is coming and he wants to be in shape to be able to run that race. How we understand the future, this is just an example, it changes how we live today. Does that make sense? And so that's, that's again, Paul's, Paul's hope for writing about the future, about resurrection, is to inspire us here and now today. So here's what here's what um I think is important for us to understand maybe to to jump in here is the earliest Christians all understood that at the end of time there would be a resurrection from the dead. A resurrection a bodily resurrection from the dead. Now Mennonites don't tend to be creedal. We don't tend to like re- recite the apostles creed or the nicene creed like some maybe a tradition you came from does in every weekend worship service. But the Apostles' Creed is the earliest confession of the church. Of, uh, this is what all Christians believe. And so here's what the Apostles' Creed says at the very end about the resurrection. It says, I believe in the resurrection of the body and life everlasting. Okay, so that's, um, that's the earliest one. And then the Nicene Creed. We did a series on the Nicene Creed a couple years ago called We Believe. And here's what the Nicene Creed it says. We look forward... To the resurrection of the dead and life, and to life in the world to come. Amen. So, first Christians all believed at the future there is going to be this resurrection from the dead. This bodily resurrection has been a part of the Christian confession of faith since the very beginning. And it is actually a part of our cultural understanding, even though we're not usually aware of it. Which direction do we bury people, you know, who are buried in a cemetery, um, which direction are they facing when they're buried? Why are, they, why are people buried facing east? Well, as the sun comes up, but there's also this understanding that when Jesus returns, like as lightning in Matthew 24, as lightning flashes from east is seen in the west, the belief is like when Jesus returns, it'll be in the east. And so like we just do this culturally. We bury people. So like when they, uh, at the resurrection, they're facing east. Interestingly enough, just learned this this week, pastors are not buried facing east. They're buried facing west. So when we are all raised, pastors are standing in front of their congregation because apparently you got a whole lot to preach about after being raised from the dead. So, we'll see how that all works out. But there's this, there's this even cultural understanding of a bodily resurrection, and yet what I find is that this is not a part of our understanding. Like, we, we don't see this as a central part of our faith, this resurrection from the dead. And here's why. It's because of this guy named Plato. Plato was a, a Greek philosopher who lived about 500 years before Jesus. And Plato started this idea of thought called dualism. And dualism is this, basically, it's a separation of physical stuff from spiritual stuff. And what Plato said, if you've ever read his parable of the cave, you can, you can check that out this way. he said, so the physical stuff, this world we live in right now, is just kind of a shadow. It's not reality. What is real is this spiritual world behind the scenes that nobody can really see. And he said the physical world is bad, the spiritual world is good. Same with our bodies. He would have said the physical body is like a cage, and, and it's like a trap. And what's trapped inside of our physical bodies is our souls. And our soul is, is, it's not physical, right? You can't do an autopsy and say, oh, you know, what happened to this person was their soul died. Like, you can't extract a soul from a human body. And so Plato would have said, like, the soul is that thing that is like that spiritual essence of us, and that's the thing that's good, but our physical bodies are bad. And so, salvation for Plato was to escape our souls to be set free from our physical bodies and our souls to sort of go on into this eternal future. Okay, so that's Plato. That is not the Bible. Uh, so the separation of physical, bad, spiritual good, that is not the message of the Scriptures. That's the message, and I think we have been very influenced by the teachings of, of Plato and dualism and stuff that has come after him. So let's take a look at the Bible. The Old Testament. How does the Old Testament begin? Genesis 1 and 2. God could have created the world any way God wanted to create the world, Right? I mean, God could have created a purely spiritual world. He could have created human beings with souls. I mean, just souls, no bodies. Just you flutter around the world as a disembodied soul. He could have created that, but he didn't. God created the world just exactly the way he wanted to create the world, and he created human beings, what? With physical bodies. God loves your body. God loves physical bodies bodies. God um, has always loved physical bodies. God loves creation, creation itself, this physical world, the the, the, the dust and the, you know, the soil and the trees and the air. God loves this. Genesis 1 and 2 gives us this picture of God looking out over this creation that he's made and he says, it is good. It is good. It is good. It is very good. So it wasn't like, you know what, God created us like these souls and we just sort of like, we're, we're, we don't have physicality, but then we sinned and now we're trapped in our physical bodies. That's a punishment is now we're trapped in this. It's not the way the Bible teaches. What the Bible teaches is now our bodies are subject to death. Because of sin, because of our rebellion, our bodies, which were made good, uh, made in God's image, now they're subject to death and disease and what is it, the second law of thermodynamics, we, tend down, we, we, we break down and tend toward randomness. You, you feel that, don't you? I'm 36, and I start to feel this, like in the morning, like after I jump on the trampoline with my kids, I'm like, I, my body is breaking down and tending toward randomness. Like I am, I'm on this timeline that my life is moving toward an end. And so that's the punishment for sin, is that we have this, this body that's subject to death, but God loves our bodies. So that's how the Old Testament begins. And then the Old Testament vision of salvation is always God renewing and restoring all things. The Old Testament vision for salvation is never to extract a soul from our body and take us somewhere else, but the vision of salvation in the Old Testament is always God coming and setting up his kingdom here on earth and reigning over all creation, a renewed and restored creation that was better than we could have ever imagined. That's the Old Testament vision of the future. Daniel chapters 2 and 7, we're going to get into this in a couple of weeks, next week, I promise, Daniel. Um, um, that Daniel chapter 2 and chapter 7 are all about God coming to establish a kingdom on earth that can never be shaken. That's salvation. God coming to establish his kingdom. Uh, in, in the Psalms, in Psalm chapter 2, it was a psalm that was read when Israelite kings were, were, were crowned, the coronation of kings, and it said that God is coming to be king and he's going to rule over all nations. This is the vision. God will someday come and set up his kingdom and rule over the whole world. Isaiah chapter 55. Check check this out. This is Isaiah's vision of of the future. It says, Instead of the thorn bush, uh, will grow the juniper, and instead of briars, the myrtle will grow. This will be for the Lord's renown, for an everlasting sign that will endure forever. Do Do you hear the physical, nitty gritty vision of salvation? The thorn bushes will turn to flowers. Everything that's wrong, that's broken, will be renewed and restored. This is a this world kind of salvation. It's very gritty, very real. Uh, Isaiah chapter 65, verse 15, it says, The wolf will lie down with the lamb and they will feed together. The lion will eat straw like the ox, and dust will be the serpent's food. Uh, Isaiah chapter 11 says, The earth will be full of the knowledge of the Lord as the waters cover the seas. This is the prophet's vision of the future. God will come and will make everything right and set up his kingdom. The prophet Ezekiel, if you read the end of Ezekiel, it's all this vision of the temple, this this stream of living water coming out from the temple and flooding the whole earth with God's goodness and healing, and, and it will be healing for the nations. This is the vision in the Old Testament. It is this worldly. It is here. It is gritty. It is God coming to remake and rest, restore and renew all created things. The Jewish people never had an idea that God was going to take his people somewhere else. But they, the Old Testament ends with these visions of the prophets, you know, pointing forward, but they don't have a, a clear understanding of how is this going to be? How is this going to work itself out? And so the Apostle Paul, like, as he's establishing the church, as he's, he's reflecting on the life of Jesus, what he does is he connects the vision of the future to everything that happened with this man, Jesus of Nazareth. With his life, his teaching, with his death on the cross, with his resurrection from the dead, and his ascension into heaven says everything hinges on Jesus. Everything hinges on him. So 1 Corinthians chapter 15, check this out. Paul is writing to this church that was, that was messed up. Uh, this early church, it was, you know, maybe 40, 50 people. It's maybe six, seven years since Paul planted the church, and there's all sorts of, like, sexual immorality. Um, there's all sorts of, like, divisions in the church over which preacher is better. Um, there's all sorts of, uh, problems about the rich taking advantage of the poor. There's all this stuff. And when Paul wants to like make his like, final exclamation point on, on why they need to shape up, he points to the resurrection. He points to the future. And here's what he says in, in 1 Corinthians um, 15. Now check out verses 16 to 19. 16 to 19 says this. Um, for if the dead are not raised... Again, apparently there were some people who were saying, no, there is no resurrection for the dead. God couldn't do that. How in the world could God do that? Raise people who've been dead for thousands of years. It doesn't make sense. And so Paul is pushing back and he says, but if the dead are not raised, well, then Christ hasn't been raised either. And if Christ has not been raised, your faith is futile and you're still in your sins. Then all those who have fallen asleep in Christ, they're lost. If only for this life we have hope in Christ, we are to be pitied more than all the others. So here's the thing, he, he just says, look at the resurrection of Jesus, and if Jesus wasn't raised from the dead, we might as well go home and call it quits, because that's central to the gospel, believing that Jesus was physically raised from the dead. His body was no longer in the tomb. It wasn't just a vision the disciples had, it wasn't some sort of spiritual Jesus, it was kind of a hologram of who he had been, it was his physical being that was raised from the dead, and he 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 says That's the gospel. He says it's essential to the gospel. But then he points and he says, but that, Jesus being raised from the dead, is like, is like this picture of what God will do for us and for all creation. Check out verses 20 to 23. But Christ has indeed been raised from the dead, the firstfruits of those who have fallen asleep. For since death came through a human being, which is Adam, the resurrection of the dead came through a human being. For as in Adam, all die. We're all subject to death because of human sin in the beginning, Adam. And so in Christ, all will be made alive. But in this order, Christ, the first fruits, then when he comes, those who belong to him. So is it, you kind of hear what Paul is doing? He's saying, Look at Jesus. Jesus is the first fruits of resurrection. What God did for Jesus, he will do for, for all who have trusted their lives to Jesus and for all of creation. And so Jesus is kind of the prototype. That's another name for first fruits, right? Use an engineering term. Jesus is the prototype of resurrection. Um, First fruits is this Old Testament image that says, you know, you you take the first, like the first tomato on the vine, right? It's the first one that ripens up. And it's like, man, I I really want to eat salsa, right? I need some salsa. Um, and so you take the tomato, but you, you, this was the Old Testament practice, you'd actually say the very first fruit I'm going to give to the Lord, it's going to be an offering to God. It's, it's the reason we tithe, it's the reason we give, like the first 10% of our resources like go back to the work of the kingdom. Like We, we give the very first, but we do that in the belief that there will be enough to sustain us we'll do that in the belief that there will be more tomatoes that there will be more resources that there will be plenty to go around. And so that's why we do that. And so Paul uses this image he says but Christ is like the deposit. He's the first fruits that guarantees that there will be this harvest to come. He's the first fruits, we are the harvest that is to come. We will be raised just as Christ has Been raised. What God did for Jesus in raising him from the dead, he will do for all of creation. And it will be more glorious than we could ever, ever imagine. So, verses 24 to 26, pick up on this. It says, okay, so Christ will come, the first fruits, and when he comes, all those who belong to him. Verse 24, then the end will come. When he hands over the kingdom of God the Father, after he has destroyed all dominion, authority, and power, for he must reign until he has put all his enemies under his feet, and the last enemy to be destroyed is death itself. So Paul is basically saying, right now, Jesus is reigning. That Jesus, when he ascended into heaven, he is sitting on the throne, and he is the king of heaven and earth. Somebody could say amen to that, right? I mean, Jesus is the king of heaven and earth. We believe this through the eyes of faith that Jesus is Lord of all creation, right Now, his life, his death, his resurrection, it's set up his kingdom that cannot be shaken. And someday, Jesus will return as the victorious king and will finalize everything that he started. But in the meantime, between the event of his resurrection and the future resurrection, there's us. There's us. Those who have been invited into the work of Jesus, who have surrendered our lives to Jesus who pray the Lord's Prayer, God, may your kingdom, your rule, your reign, your government may come here on earth as it is in heaven. In the meantime, between these two events, between this resurrection and this resurrection, we give ourselves fully to the work of the kingdom. We work for the kingdom. We work against anything that doesn't look like Jesus. How we, how we see the future, it impacts how we live today. And the promise is that when Jesus is done reigning, when he returns and he destroys all the powers, all the authorities, all the dominions, and even death itself is destroyed, then Jesus will sort of hand over the kingdom to the Father. But right now, Jesus is reigning, and we get to follow him in his kingdom. And so, <clears throat> I want to just touch on this. That the Paul uses this language of falling asleep. As like those who die, it's as if they've fallen asleep. He uses it in verse 7, he uses it again in verse 18 and verse 20. Why in the world does he use that language? What does that mean that if, if you're a believer in Jesus and you've you've died, you, you've kind of fallen asleep? Well, it's he's picking up on the story of Jesus from Mark chapter five. Do you remember the story? Where the man comes and he says, My daughter's sick. Would you come and heal her? And so Jesus goes, and by the time he gets there, she's already dead. And uh, everybody says, hey, it's no use, Jesus. She's already dead. And what does Jesus say? She's not dead. She's asleep. Jesus goes into the room. He he takes away all of the people who were gathered to mourn. He pushes them all out of the room, and he takes a few of his disciples and her mom and dad in. And this is, is one of the most beautiful and tender images in the Gospels. Jesus looks at this little girl Who's, who's, who's lifeless. there on her bed, and he says these words, Talitha Kaum. He speaks in Aramaic. He speaks the language that any family would have spoken in their own house. And he says these words. He says, Little girl, little girl, wake up. He, he uses the language that a parent would use for the child. Now, we have one child who doesn't want to wake up this morning, or any morning, really. Um, and so I'm guessing when Carmen went in, I won't tell you which one it is, um, but when Carmen went into the room this morning uh, to wake our daughter up, narrows it down for you a little bit, right? There's this, like, sing-songy kind of voice you have, right? It says, hey, little girl, wake up. You call him by name, wake up. Y- you've done this, right? You've had this done to you as a child. And this is what Jesus does. Wake up. And he takes her by the hand, and life comes back into her body, and she's revived. And what Jesus is doing is he's reinterpreting death. Saying, you know what, like to, as for believers in Jesus to die, it has no more effect on you than a nice long nap. Or than a good night's sleep. Because of the resurrection of Jesus, there is no fear in death. It takes away the fear of death. For us, there is this, this trust that Jesus, that Jesus has has been victorious even over death itself, and He points to the future when we will all one day wake up, when death itself will pass away, and there will be no more pain. There will be no more pain, and so here's where I want to end. Uh, it does it does raise a question. Does that mean our loved ones who have passed away that they're sleeping? And, and some Christians believe this. It's an idea called soul sleep. And it's just like, you know, there, we say rest in peace. Um, that, that maybe our followers of Jesus who have passed away, they, they're just sort of sleeping, unaware of the passing of time in the presence of Jesus. And there are some scriptures that might point to that, this idea of falling asleep. But there are also plenty of scriptures that point to, uh, point to the reality that we are conscious with Christ. Jesus says to the thief on the cross, he says, today you'll be with me in paradise, and it kind of points to the reality that we'll be aware, we'll be awake, we'll be with Jesus. Uh, and so we don't know, is it asleep or is it awake? We, again, we just don't have great answers. But we do know that to be, uh, to be out, absent from our body is to be present with Jesus. It's to be in his presence. And so we can trust that. We can put our hope in that. We can move toward that with confidence and hope. And the promise that someday this sort of intermediate state, this intermediate time period where we are with Jesus and our souls are kind of with him in his presence, someday Jesus points to the future when he will return. He will bring all those who have fallen asleep and the dead in Christ will rise and there will be this sort of reunion of soul and body in what Paul ends up calling a spiritual body, that that there will be this, this coming together in a way that is more glorious than we could ever imagine. Someday you will dance on your own grave in Jesus' name. Does that sound exciting to anybody? That, that, that this should be so encouraging for Christians that death does not have the final word. And we ask all sorts of questions about what will that be like? What will the renewed creation be like? <clears throat> and here's what Martin Luther says. That we have about as much of an idea of what that new world will be like as a child in the womb can anticipate what this world is like. I mean, they might, they might catch hints, they might hear a voice, they might even see light, but they couldn't in their wildest dreams imagine this world. I think the same is true as we imagine God's world. God, we thank you for this hope. We thank you for the promise. We thank you that everything, everything hinges on Jesus. And God, what you have done in Jesus and through Jesus, God, we thank you that you've just invited us. God, this open invitation to be a part of your kingdom, God, today we want to live in light of that, in response to that, to, in response to your grace. God, take away any fear of death that, that may be just sort of haunting us. God, take away any, um, any anxiety about that as, as our lives move toward their end. God, I pray that as as we move toward the end of our lives, that our hope in you would grow, our confidence in you would grow, our joy just anticipation of your kingdom come, it would grow, Lord Jesus. Thank you that, that we, God, can um, can move into this world in confidence. God, we want to share the love and the life of Jesus with everyone around us. God, we want everyone we love to know you and to experience the promise of what you have in store for those who follow you. So God, give us courage, give us Um, Fill us with your spirit, Lord, as as we trust you and follow you. We pray this in the name of our resurrected Savior, Jesus Christ, the King of heaven and earth.